Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 30th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Dublin Airport has made a laughing stock out of Ireland. What happened at the airport yesterday was inexcusable, an unforgivable thing to have done on passengers and something that reflected on all of us as a nation. It is hard not to be embarrassed to be Irish this morning. As it, odd as it might seem, but it's probably true to say that some people watched those those long queues in envy, wishing that they could have been in one of the long queues but can't leave the country as they can't get a passport. People visiting here might wonder what Cade Milafolcha means. If they had to guess, they might tell you it means give us all of your money. Car rental is one example with one tourist quoted €10,000 to rent a car for three weeks. This is a country, of course, where you'll be asked to pay four or €500 for one night in a hotel and where you might spend six hours then queuing to get out of uh, the country only to be told that your plane left before you got to your gate. The Dublin Airport Authority says about a 1,000 people missed their flight yesterday. Let's speak to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on tourism, Imelda Munster, who's a TD for Louth and East Mead, and a very good morning to you, Imelda Munster, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, today. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to try and explain any of this, uh, but I think all of us were just flabbergasted looking at the scenes in Dublin Airport yesterday. It was absolutely insane. I mean, it was it was just embarrassing. It was cringeworthy looking, and those people, like it, literally went right around the building more or less and people just queuing for hours and no information was a major factor as well that people weren't being told anything um, and had no idea what was happening but knew in their heart of, heart of hearts many of them knew that there was, wasn't a hope in hell of getting their flights you know and p- people up from the crack of dawn and looking forward to their holidays and look it's the same with the passport mm. office and I raised this last week too all of this could have been preempted. Mm. All of it. You know, the opening up people after two years of a pandemic mad to go on holidays. The passport office could have had, you know, recruited the staff, had looked at their systems to see where they were failing, what mm. they could do to, to speed things up. And the same with Dublin Airport. Dublin Airport, primarily, they're saying anyway, it's the staff shortage. And they're saying when they're hiring uh, security staff that it's a lengthy, lengthy process. Mm. No, that's a, that's a long way. And everything. But uh, all of that could yeah. have been 
with proper pre-planning and management. All of that's a long-winded way of saying they don't have uh, the ability, they don't have the wherewithal to run an international airport. Why don't uh, we get somebody who can do the job? Well, I mean, the the fiasco yesterday, certainly it would be hard to disagree with you on that. You know, and as I said, you know, all Mm. it took would have taken would have been proper management and proper planning. And if they're not capable of that, then there, there has to be yeah. serious questions. It was a nice day yesterday, but thank God it was. Now, imagine if there'd been a storm. Yeah, yeah. And I was looking at one of the photos and little kids in buggies and that sitting for mm. hours. Now, you know, imagine the stress on the parents trying to keep them occupied and quiet and yeah. Just queue, you know, the queue. Oh, it's amazing there wasn't a riot. I mean, or fisticuffs or, or, or whatever. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people spent three hours trying to get into the airport yeah, yeah, and yeah. then another three hours for some people. But you can uh, imagine the stress there with your family and yeah. your first holiday in two years and you have to walk in your butt off and mm. save them and then panicking in that queue saying, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? Mm. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. It's I, I mean, I couldn't stand for six hours uh, and there's nothing wrong with me. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah, I just yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, it, it was it was insane. What did elderly it. people, disabled people yeah. do? Yeah. Parents with buggies yeah. and all people that, that need to take yeah. medication yeah. regularly. Yeah. You know all that yeah. sort of thing. I mean, it was just and everybody paying top dollar, of course, uh, and uh, just <laughs> getting a plane. It's it really is an unbelievable embarrassment. And no matter what excuses are put forward at this stage, they are nothing more than excuses. What we want is solutions, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's a, there are excuses that, uh, you know, there, there, there's no actual grounding for excuses at this stage when all it would have taken was proper planning, pre-planning, management, getting the staff in earlier, you know, much, much earlier before peak season. And they should have started recruiting. Maybe they thought they were... Um, trying to skin flint and do with, make do with the staff that they had and, you know, uh, from a, a revenue type of thing, you know, do try and get away with the minimum staff. But, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's absolutely insane. You know, and management uh, have serious questions to answer and they need to get their act together because mm. we're, we're now in peak season. Mm. Well, you know, if you miss your flight, uh, you could miss a, a wedding, you could miss a job interview, you could miss a hospital appointment. Uh, you funeral, family funeral family, abroad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't compensate for that. The airport are saying that they're going to compensate, but there's things that you just can't compensate for. And if you arrived to the airport two, three, four, five, six hours before your flight was due to take off and you didn't get your flight, mm. uh, there's a real problem. Yeah, and they were, they were the ones telling people to arrive early. And then people thought, right, what we'll do is we're asked, we'll arrive early, you know, to make sure. And then the people were arriving early, as they were told to do, and they still couldn't manage it. Mm. We they asked, were left longer in the queues. We asked the Irish Hotels Federation uh, to join us on the programme. They're not available, but uh, they did give us a statement, and they say that Irish hotels continue to offer good value to visitors. Can I just say, firstly, Mike, that I'm extremely disappointed that um, the hotel, the Irish Hotel Federation, couldn't put a spokesperson on this morning, given what's going on in the industry. I mean, I'm extremely disappointed um, that they couldn't do that. And to my mind, there's no excuse. Of course, they could could have got a spokesperson on to to explain to people, both um, Irish people and um, tourists arriving here, the extortionate amount that some hotels are charging. It's, it's 
you know, you're, mm. you're, you're into... And it's not just hotels, it, it, it's hostels, it's B&Bs. Uh, I, I think I was looking yeah. at a, a, a bed in a bunk, uh, one of uh, the two bunks, but in a 14-bed dormitory uh, for nearly €200 Euro over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing untold damage to the tourism industry here, and I have to say, and I'm straight up honest, it's just pure greed and price gouging. I mean, it's, it's nothing else. You know, and you have people talking to people that need to travel to Dublin for hospital appointments and even concerts. Mm. Everything just shoots up and mm. they're just they're doing themselves no favours. And you have international tours and you have visitors, you know, from Europe. They're, they're well-travelled people. They'll be well able to compare prices and see mm. that when they come to Ireland, you're actually ripped off and compare um, prices with, you know, other... other They mentioned the Bruce Springsteen concert in in their statement and they say prices will go up for that, but they do that everywhere in the world, uh, apparently. I don't think they do it to the extent that they do it in Ireland. I honestly don't. I mean, just I was just thinking um, there the last week or so, during the pandemic, the tourism industry were looking for help and, Mm. you know, rightly so, the the hotels and all of that, the the industry, and they were begging people to holiday at home. Mm. And people actually supported them. Mm. People actually supported them. Oh, and, people, course, yeah. and many people were saying, God, it's, you know, if you, mm. once, if you get the weather in Ireland, there's no nicer place. And that's true. I've always said that myself. Mm. But, but here they are now, just when things are starting to open up, they're starting to get busy again. Here they go back to hiking up the prices, being greedy, ripping mm. people off, nothing else, after people supporting them. Yeah. Well, that's because there's few rooms left. And one of the reasons for that, and they mentioned in their statement, is uh, the number of rooms that are are being rented by the government and uh, a lot of them for Ukrainian refugees. So they really are exploiting a situation. I think, I mean, earlier last week, they were saying the the, um, cost of living crisis. That's what they were saying first, you know. But sure, every hotel across Europe and mm. hotels up north. Well, they, they say, ju- just to be fair to them, they say that the cost of a hotel has gone up 16% over the last three years uh, and that the rooms that we're talking about are the ones that are, are left and people are trying to get them last minute and that's why they're so expensive. Uh, but I, I suppose the point I, I was making there was that there's so few rooms left because so many of them are already being rented by the government. Well, that's, I mean, I've seen something, I think it was this morning or yesterday, that the Tarnished had said 5% of rooms in Dublin were um, taken up with um, housing Ukrainian refugees and 9% across the rest of the country. Um, so if you take it, but it, that wouldn't be um, just hotels, you'd mm. have... Uh, B&Bs, guest houses, mm-hmm. all you know, all of that. Um, I I think, but I'm not 100% sure. I remember reading somewhere there were 1,300, um, or 13,000, sorry, beds and hotels and guest houses and B&Bs that were being used for to house mm-hmm. uh, Ukrainian refugees. Um, but Minister Catherine Martin has, had also said that when, with her engagement with the stakeholders, that the shortage of beds was never flagged up with her when she was mm. dealing with the industry. It was the VAT rate. The VAT rate was all they were interested in. And we had them in at the committee. And I've actually asked the committee, now we'll be, we'll be looking at scheduling them in this Wednesday. I've asked that the committee um, invite 
the hotel federation into meeting just mm. to, you know, because this situation is untenable. I don't know if you've seen the Irish Independent today, but they've done some very good comparisons, interesting comparisons at, le- at least. €448 Euro to stay in the Ormond Hotel. Uh, that's a four-star hotel in Kilkenny for two nights, 448. The same uh, two nights uh, in August in the Mayflower Hotel in London for 233. It's price, isn't it? Uh, then they're talking about uh, the Skylon in Drumcondra. A lot of people will know that, of course. 406 for two nights, €178 Euro for a four-star hotel in Madrid for the same two nights. Uh, then a three-star Ashley Hotel in Cork, €285, Euro, uh, and uh, that compares uh, to, I'm lost there on the page, but uh, I mean, it goes there, Milan there, uh, they're talking about cheaper flights. Uh, I mean, uh, The point, I think, of the article is that you could pay for your flights and the hotel in a, a city abroad and still save on uh, spending uh, if you were to spend the money in a, an Irish hotel. Yeah, I've seen another article earlier on um, about, it was going back to, to, or it was earlier on this month, should I say, that it was a two-night stay in a four-star hotel here was €700. And you compare that with a similar hotel in Berlin for €300, €450 in Paris and 500 in London. And all for the 700 as you say, you could get flights, your luggage, the whole shooting gallery. Of course, you wouldn't get on the plane. (laughs) That's that's the only problem there. they're, They're actually driving people out. That's what they're doing, mm. you know, and it'll leave a sour taste in people's mouth. And as I said before, like people from Europe coming over here, well, they see the rip-off charges and they see what they can get. And they'll just say, no, I'd, I'd love to see Ireland, but I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just not giving those prices. And when you get a reputation like that, it's so short term of them. When you get a reputation like that, it takes a long, long time to recover. Mm. So they needn't be crying over Milk. Well, there's, the they're saying that they're giving good value because you look at the increase in energy prices, the cost of food and beverage supplies, all uh, increasing 88% for energy, 20% up for the others. Uh, but they are increasing prices on food. I don't know if it's got more expensive uh, because I don't go out that much. But I did hear a few weeks ago from many of our listeners that they were being asked to pay €38 Euro for a steak quite often. That's, that's extremely expensive. But again, what they're saying here... Um, is no justification for the prices that they're charging here because right across Europe you have the same cost of living crisis. So if the hotels in Europe are able to offer reasonable, fair prices, mm. value for money prices, then the, it's just pure greed. As, you know, as I mm. said to you earlier, during the pandemic they were they were glad of people to support them and grateful for it. And now once they're opening up again, here comes the greed back again. The rip off, you mm. know, and it's it it will do and it will do them damage yeah. long term. It definitely will, and particularly if if international tourists or travellers, you know, when they see that between the mm. the the rental of cars, the cost mm. of hotels, they're just going to say, "I'm not going there." And, I'm not and, going and, there. And they've left the government with egg on their face. They asked for. A leg up. They got a leg up uh, with the extension of uh, the VAT rate, the nine percent rate, yeah. and, and now here they are. Even in the extension, I think it costs the taxpayer two hundred million to give that extension until February twenty three, and that's not been passed on to the consumers. So you have to question the wisdom, mm. given the cost, you know, on the, for taxpayers. Um, mm. 
that's what you have to question. Like, yeah, well, maybe if they weren't getting, it on. and maybe if they weren't getting the cheap VAT rate, uh, it would be eight hundred for a hotel room instead of four hundred. Uh, no, no, I mean they 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 were crying poverty yeah. and looking for an extension. And by the way, their this particular business, this is a benefit that's unique to them. There's no other mm, business yeah. getting that, you know. So and notorious I mean, for low pay as well. It's, look, we had workers in at the committee um, and union reps and they, they, anything like the stories coming from the workers in relation to low pay. Uh, and it, this isn't just hotels now, this mm. is in the hospitality sector as well, like um, split shifts, uh, tips, you know, all mm. of that, just the, 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 the whole atmosphere. And, and then they wonder that they can't get recruited recruit staff yeah. you know they're saying there's currently around I think it's 9,000 9,000 um, positions available in hotels and guest houses and I'm not tarring everyone with the one brush but this was in hospitality in general but um, you know you have students and they're split shifts so they come into the city mm. go back out they're not taking account of um, cost of living rent all that sort of thing um, and yet they're paying them the very bare minimum, okay. that, you know, and they're charging those rates. I mean, yep. it's, the whole thing is unjustifiable. So I hope now this week we'll get um, an agreement at the Transport or the Tourism Committee to get them in sooner rather than later. And definitely, I mean, that VAT reduction has to be looked at if this continues because the mm. long-term damage they're doing to our tourism industry um, where they're, they're, and domestic tourism industry where families, mm. ordinary families, won't be able to afford a few days down the country okay. because of that, you know. Oh, I know, sure. I mean, as I said at the very start, uh, I, you know, I can't ask you to explain it uh, mm. Uh, because it's inexplicable. I have to leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, that's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on tourism, uh, Melda Munster, a TD for Loud and Smith. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to uh, the listener texting us uh, to say they spent four hours queuing in the airport yesterday and they still missed uh, their flight. Then they spent six hours waiting to book another flight but there were no flights available for them no one accountable no one sacked in Dublin airport thank you indeed uh, for sharing that story with us I think it's probably one of a thousand stories if what Dublin airport authority is telling us uh, this morning is uh, correct and you heard Imelda Munster say she'd like uh, there to be some accountability and people in front of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Tourism. Uh, it's not uh, an issue that is of concern just to the opposition. Neve Smith is a Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan and she's the chair of uh, that committee and she joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Neve Smith, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I'm sure you're at one with Imelda Munster on that point. I am, of course. I mean, it was very distressing to just watch the scenes at Dublin Airport yesterday. Uh, people queuing um, out on the streets, out on the road, uh, through the ter- trying to get into the terminals in the first place. Uh, and not only that, but knowing the fact that mo- a lot of those people will be holidaymakers, people who are going abroad for the first time in about three years. Uh, and we also heard interviews of families who had been here on holidays too, holidaymakers. Uh, their whole holiday ruined by their experience trying to get back out of the country through Dublin airport down to the long queues and a total inefficiency it can't be described as anything other than that Michael total inefficiency by Dublin Airport Authority yeah they obviously can't run an international airport 
Well, it's very distressing, as I said. Uh, and and I, I couldn't disagree with you. Um, I know that the DA are going to have to present themselves to Minister Nocton and Minister Ryan today to give mm. uh, reasons why. But I suppose what's even more worrying to hear in some of the reports over the last 24 hours is that the DA can't even say why the chaos was caused. Yeah. Now, recru- recruitment is thrown out as, as, an, as an excuse, in my mind, for some things. And not just an excuse. In, in real terms, we know recruitment is a huge issue right across all sectors of tourism, retail, healthcare, everything like that. However... The DA have had months to prepare for this. And this wasn't a bank holiday weekend. It wasn't. This was a, a weekend leading up to the holiday season. So next weekend, this weekend, you had 50,000 50, passengers going through Dublin Airport. Mm. Next weekend, they will be faced with double that, over 100,000 passengers going through Dublin Airport. So they're going to have to present to the minister, uh, both ministers, and I believe that uh, Kieran O'Donnell, uh, who is chair of the Transport Committee, is also going to have them in this week as well. They're going to have to present a pragmatic demonstration of how they're going to ensure the people who are leaving this country on holidays don't face the same challenges and distress mm. uh, and anarchy it could be described as at the airport that they experienced this weekend. Yeah, oh God, uh, it could have turned out nasty and uh, I mean there was a small blessing in that the weather was good uh, but asking anybody to stand for six hours, three hours, whatever length of time uh, it is, uh, it's a uh, 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 an unexcusable uh, amount of time. I, I mean, you're paying uh, a lot of money uh, to uh, get on a plane and to go through all of that. I mean, at that caller, they're saying they missed their flight and then they couldn't get another flight. Absolutely. And I have to tell you now, I haven't been anywhere that much myself over the last mm. few years, Michael, but there about four weeks ago, I had a, a meeting to attend in Strasbourg. It was just an ordinary weekend and I was shocked to see people queuing on the road. My flight was, I think, nine o'clock and I said, listening to the report, I gave myself plenty of time. I was at the airport at 6am and at that point, people were queuing on the road to get into the airport in the first place. Now, I was travelling alone. If I had my five-year-old with me or some of the parents who are travelling abroad, as I said, for the first time in three years, with a couple of small kids with them, it would be so distressing. It would ruin the holiday. And I know that some of the people were not just travelling for holiday time. I heard reports of people mm. travelling for family weddings. Mm. To miss a memorable occasion like that really Fu- is unexpected. Funerals, and hospital appointments. Exactly, I mean, people exactly. are travelling for a, a myriad of reasons. Uh, and exactly. <coughs> missing your flight and getting... Uh, the cost of uh, the flight reimbursed doesn't compensate you. Well, it doesn't. And nobody has talked about it. People are gone on, are going on holidays and they've missed their flight. They've also perhaps missed two or three days of their actual holiday and their uh, accommodation and all of that. And let's be honest, Michael, we know when it comes to reimbursement, these things are never simple. They're layered with bureaucracy. I've seen reports where some of the travel experts are saying, you know, when you arrive at Dublin Airport, make sure you get your parking ticket or buy yourself a bottle of water that you can actually prove that you arrived at the airport prior and given, you know, following the guidelines and the advice that's given by the DAA to be able to just to prove that because mm. you know, sometimes the hassle is more than it's worth when it comes to these things when families are so upset mm. about it. But I'll tell you one thing that the DAA want to really get their act together over the next couple of days and I said, really come in and, and be able to demonstrate to the ministers how they're going to handle over 100,000 passengers uh, going through Dublin Airport and you know, we've had three years of COVID, three years of no travelling anywhere uh, this is really Ireland's opportunity to shine 
fine as a country uh, for tourism, for holidaymakers coming to this country. And equally so, we deserve to give people a good service at the airport, at the passport office and all of these essential pieces of uh, bureaucracy, if you like, right. when, when people are travelling and trying to get abroad for the first time maybe in three years. I'll tell you a, a good one, if you like. Uh, it was a very bad one for the people I'm talking about uh, who I know personally uh, who had their holiday booked uh, and then went to book parking at the airport there was none available. Uh, this was just in the last couple of weeks and that never changed and they ended up uh, getting uh, the GO bus from Galway to Dublin Airport so that they could go on holidays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, Michael, we have to be, I suppose, mindful of the fact too that Dublin Airport and the security did fail a recent uh, European Aviation (laughs) Safety Authority um, screening there a number of weeks ago. So that has obviously added extra pressure. I mean, it's not good news to have failed it, but I understand that there will be another uh, reassessment of that. Uh, and of course, that would have added um, extra pressure, I suppose, on, on security. But that's probably where you'll hear the argument in terms of recruitment. But at the at the end of the day, the, the day rather, the DA had been running that airport mm. for a vast number of years. They should have been aware of this. They mm. knew the numbers. They would have been aware of the numbers potentially going through the airport yeah. this weekend. They're not all lastminute.com flights. They're flights that were booked months and months in advance. And it is just not good enough yeah. to have people families, older people queuing out on the road yeah. for hours. And, and we all know that they let the staff go because of COVID and that there's a, a lot of questions about the terms and conditions of, of employment at DAA as well. Okay, yes. Well, look, at, um, I, I, I don't know too much of the ins and outs in that, mm. but I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't uh, be looking forward to seeing any of the scenes that we've seen at, at the airport no, this no. weekend. And the truth of it is, like, there was anarchy. I understand the security did have to intervene in certain circumstances and I could easily understand how people would get so frustrated and so mm. angry mm. to queue to get inside the door. That's not taken into account the queue for the check-in. Mm. That's not taken into account the queue for, for security. And as we know, security can be yeah. quite stressed if you have a number of kids and you have to start mm. stripping off your shoes. Oh, and your and when, it, when, and it's, when it's like that, though, I mean, people... Uh, respond, uh, and maybe not in the way they normally act, uh, because, I mean, they might miss the wedding or the funeral or the hospital appointment or whatever it is, uh, or be uh, unavailable for work and they might end up sacked as a result of uh, not getting on their plane. So then people start uh, skipping the queue and jumping the queue and all that sort of thing. Then somebody gets annoyed about that and very quickly tensions uh, rise and it's a very, very dangerous situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I said, it is only a bit, it's four weeks ago since I went to Strasbourg and as Mm. I said, you know, it was fine for me. I was on my own travelling, so it didn't uh, affect me that much. But I could see how one or two people did skip the queue in the actual yeah. airport. And I could see people around me all kind of looking at each other, getting a little bit tense about it all. Uh, and, and as I said, that's four weeks ago. So mm. this is not a new problem. This is a problem that the DA could preempt, that they could have planned for, and that shouldn't be happening, essentially. Should not be happening. Should have planned for and should have executed exa- uh, that plan uh, properly and shouldn't be offering excuses today no. I imagine is uh, no. the feeling that most people would have Neve yeah. Smith thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning Neve Smith is a Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan and uh, the chair of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Tourism Michael Reed on LMFM. Politicians in the North will meet at Stormont today, probably for very little reason, but Sinn Féin will be the largest party when they do gather. And Sinn Féin has reinforced its status as the party 
of government in waiting here. That's according to Michael Brennan writing in uh, the Business Post yesterday following the publication of its Red Sea political poll. Michael is on the line and a very good morning to you and thanks indeed as always for joining us uh, this morning, Michael. It really was a remarkable poll uh, uh, for Sinn Féin yesterday. Yeah, that's right, Michael. And uh, I, I got uh, messages from Sinn Féin TDs after it came out. They're delighted. They they see it as further momentum for them. Obviously, a general election could at least two, two and a half years away. But they're in a great position and their their momentum is, is generated even further by the results of the Northern Assembly elections, even if Michelle O'Neill isn't going to get to take up her post as, as First Minister yet. Okay, uh, and they've more support, as you say, than Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael combined uh, on 36. Yeah, and that's the first time that's happened in, in our series of Red Sea polls. It, it's quite incredible. Fine Gael were down by a point to 20%, uh, Fianna Fáil down by one point to 15%. So that puts them on 35% together and Sinn Féin ahead of both them on 36%. And I was saying, uh, Michael, it's a hundred years anniversary of the start of the civil war that led effectively to the creation eventually of Fianna Fáil and uh, Fine Gael and the civil war politics that it was called we had. And you can see now we're, we're on the cusp of another huge shift in Irish politics with the, with the growth and support mm. for Sinn Féin. Not a, a good poll for Fianna Fáil, a particularly bad poll for Fine Gael. What's uh, driving all of this? I think you can't look beyond the wider context, um, Michael. Look, there's lots of problems out there for people in the economy and in their lives, but you have to look at the cost of living crisis where people are suddenly looking at their their bank accounts and, and they're finding their money is going much quicker than it used to because of rising prices. Um, and then you also have the housing crisis, and, and we did several other questions on that as well. And that certainly, I think, is a key factor in the in the rise in support for Sinn Féin. Mm. That people are very frustrated with, with with housing and the problems there, and are, are looking for a, a new alternative. Yeah, and uh, indeed, uh, people made that known to you uh, in uh, the poll, and had a, a lot to say about housing and. Uh, making housing uh, affordable. Uh, a lot of people are, are very critical of uh, the central bank guidelines on borrowing. Yeah, that's right. And and these rules, I suppose, have been credited with keeping property prices below what they might have been if people could just have borrowed whatever they could get from a bank and, and you know bid up houses even higher. But a lot of people feel at the moment that the, the rules are making it harder for first-time buyers sometimes and trapping them in rent for longer than than they would like to be. So about 85% of people polled said they'd like to see a lower deposit for first-time buyers. At the moment, they have to have 10% of the house price to to get a mortgage. Another 82% said they should borrow more than 3.5 times salary if they can show they can afford to. That's the effective limit in place at the moment for most borrowers for first-time buyers. And even, I think, a more surprising finding in some ways was we asked what percentage of people would like to see house prices decline. Mm. And that would be seen as almost a political no-no. 85% said they, they want to see house prices decline. That's really a sign of, of people unhappy with the the state of things at the moment. Okay, and undoubtedly that's because uh, there's a, a lot of uh, young people or potential first-time buyers uh, who can't aspire to owning their own home anymore. Yeah, that, that's 
right, uh, Michael. And I think if you think about it, when you look at the breakdown of the figures, the support for a decline in house prices is high across all age groups, including people over 55 who would have a way higher percentage of home ownership. So I think what's probably driving that is there are people with grown-up children living at home uh, who can't afford to rent or buy, and they're very afraid for their future, their children, that they won't be able to, to, to have their own home. And, and they're, they're, it's no use to them being living in a very valuable home if their children are stuck there with them as well. All right. Uh, I see um, that there was some reaction uh, from Sinn Féin to you about Neil Richmond's position on United Ireland. Uh, he took greater offence uh, when uh, I put it to him uh, that traditionally Fine Gael had been seen as a party of West Brits. Yeah, and, and I, 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 Neil certainly has been advancing the, the cause of United Ireland within Fine Gael, but I think your question is certainly, Michael, a, a fair one because that, that there would be an element in Fine Gael that would be seen as, as again, not incredibly enthusiastic by United Ireland, even though it is their, certainly their party policy now. But Sinn Féin, when they heard Neil Richmond suggesting an Oireachtas committee to look at the future of United Ireland, were, were very happy and perhaps suspected that maybe the hand of Leo Radker or somebody was, was getting him to float it out there. Now, Neil, when I put that to him, said no, it was his own brainwave and so on. But, you know, they, Sinn Féin are looking for any sign that parties like Fine Gael are sort of getting on board with the, with the United Ireland concept. And, and Neil Richmond is uh, certainly uh, one of their favourite Fine Gael backbenchers at the moment. OK, well, if there was a... a an election in the morning, uh, I think, uh, as you put it, uh, Sinn Féin are, are the government in waiting and they would uh, form uh, the next uh, government and probably north and south of this island if uh, they could come to some sort of resolution uh, on the other side of uh, the border. But if Sinn Féin got into uh, government here, uh, would they be able to solve all of these problems? I, I mean, uh, the guidelines from the central bank on borrowing are... <laughs> central bank's guidelines uh, and uh, I'm not sure that Sinn Féin uh, would override them or would they would they be able to bring down the cost of uh, housing or renting or the cost of living or deliver a united Ireland for that matter yeah I, I think it's a very fair question Michael and there's going to be much more scrutiny of Sinn Féin's policies than, than ever now because people can see the polls are pointing towards them being in the next government and leading it if they can get another party to, to go in and help them for, you know, make up the numbers. Realistically, there's no way Sinn Féin can achieve all the things they're promising to achieve. That's always the way with opposition parties. But I think their big focus will have to be on housing because that's what, what people want. And I think they're, they're going to have to try something radically different there. They will have to get the construction industry to support them. They'll need the central bank to play ball. All of those levers, as you point out, they don't actually control. But I think that's going to be their big focus. A United Ireland, as we know, is not something you can deliver with the click of a button and so on. I think that's obviously a longer term uh, policy and plan for them. But the housing is, is the big one they, they, I think they'll focus on. OK, it's a, a very interesting uh, poll and uh, there'll be a lot of interest in it for different reasons, no doubt, Michael. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, though. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. As always, that's Michael Brennan, who is the political editor with The Business Post. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, consumers uh, should uh, be entitled uh, to, to better protection under a uh, new EU directive which has come into force this week, uh, the Better Enforcement and Modernisation Directive, or the Omnibus Directive, as it's called. It amends previous EU consumer rules, and we'll hear a little bit more about this. Diana Valentine, the Press and Communications Manager for the European Consumer Centre of Ireland, is on the line to explain what is happening here and a very good morning to you Diana and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, There's a a lot uh, in this to do with trading on the internet isn't there? That's right yes good morning Michael. Um, So um, just briefly um, um, yeah what the latest directive updates is um, existing consumer protection legislation that um, is already in force in um, in the European Union, uh, but uh, more importantly, it regulates the main types of consumer contracts that consumers might be exposed on, up to um, when shopping online. Mm. Um, so um, this this legislation, um, as I said, the new this new directive was um, conceived in, in around uh, 2019. So. Uh, well before um, the pandemic years when online shopping um, increased um, um, exponentially. And this is because um, e-commerce technology um, as a whole has um, uh, developed um, greatly over the last few years. And also because um, the complexity of online consumer contracts has increased as well to Mm -hmm. the point that um, when you shop on an online marketplace or a digital platform, um, consumers find it hard to, to ascertain who they engage in a contract with. Is it the platform itself? Is it a third-party vendor? Is it a distributor that also does retail? So this is what the latest... This is, these are some of mm. the things that the latest directive um, addressed. Uh, odd, odd as it sounds, you should, as a result of uh, these rules, know who you're buying from. Uh, but there's been confusion as well, has there not, uh, in terms of what happens if you buy something and you decide that you don't want it. I know I've heard from people, Diana, who said, well, uh, I was able to return it uh, as I expected, uh, but when I I did return it, I couldn't believe how much it cost me to post it back. That's right. So... um um, when you when you buy online on on you know be it a website or um, a, a digital platform or an online marketplace such as eBay, Amazon, and all of those, it's very important that you read the terms and conditions because they are meant to, to specifically uh, state um, who is the seller, where are they based, but uh, more importantly, who handles the delivery and the returns because. Um, on marketplaces, you will find that third-party vendors are responsible just for the sales, um, essentially. But it might be the marketplace that handles the delivery, mm. and then a returns company handles the return. So that could create different scenarios uh, where you have to pay for a return or you don't have to pay for the return. Mm. So essentially what we advise um, people is always read those terms and conditions with regards to, um, to, d- to delivery and returns because you, you might find the um, information quite surprising at times. Well, absolutely, and it depends on where you're returning it to. Uh, if you do have to pay for it or take responsibility for it, I suppose uh, you might have the option of hand-delivering it uh, if uh, there's somewhere nearby uh, or posting it, and that can be generally expensive. Uh, but if you're posting to the UK, for example, because it's 
outside of uh, the European Union, it's going to be all the more expensive, isn't it? That's right, yeah. And there, there yeah. might be import taxes on the returns as well. So there's a number of problems um, that um, might arise. So, yeah, that's why it's important to, to, to verify that information before even engaging in, in that purchase. All right. Talk to me about the resale of tickets uh, for concerts and sports events and the like. Yeah, so um, as you know, Ireland, uh, for instance, um, had their own legislation um, in 2019 in relation to ticket uh, touting. But this directive uh, introduces introduces, um, um, a Europe-wide ban on the resale of tickets um, that are specifically bought using automated means, which um, are usually called bots. So what happens sometimes, and I'm sure a lot of us have experienced it while we try to to queue for tickets for for this and that. Um, Sometimes um, tickets just sell out in a matter of minutes or within the hour and and all that. And um, that's because, you know, events might might be very popular, but also because um, some parties, entities um, use automated software essentially to... um, purchase an unlimited or a great number of, of, of tickets in in one go. Um, and even though digital platforms and various um, ticket sellers' um, websites have increased their security measures over the last few years because um, it has become a problem, essentially, mm. um, these automated means continue to evolve. So... Um, so, which is why the European Commission and some member states as well um, have looked at this major problem and have decided to, to regulate it. Mm. And, uh, and stamp it out, is it? I mean, will this actually succeed in bringing an end to people being asked uh, extortionate prices for tickets? Well, it, the, the enforcement itself uh, depends on, on, on the member states, consumer authorities and um, regulators at national level. So um, just, in, in, in just briefly, I want to explain um, how directives work. So this, this new directive by, by, by the European Commission is one of these instruments that are supranational laws um, and they set goals and um, minimum standards for EU states to implement. Um, and then the governments of the member states will then introduce the main guidelines of the directives into national law. It's what we call transposition. So it is up to the individual countries through their consumer authorities and, and all that to devise their own laws um, on how to, to reach these goals. So... Um, the EU advises a complete ban on the resale of tickets if they were bought by automated means and they're they're sold as you sold, as you said at extortionate prices. But it's up to um, the individual member states on how they monitor and how they enforce this um, this situation. Okay. Well, I, I think uh, a lot of people would hope that it, it would work. Uh, before you leave us uh, this morning, uh, tell me uh, about reviews uh, that we read on the internet. Do you trust them? Personally, um, I do choose products based on reviews, but mm. um, I've been very wary over the last um, say, couple of years or so. Um, because um, there are lots of investigations um, in Ireland and at EU level that um, essentially um, a lot of reviews are are fake. Really? 
Yes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of surveys and reports done by authorities in Ireland, in in the UK, France, and also by the European Commission itself have established that uh, fake reviews is, is a big problem, and that's because um, again technology that has evolved, but security and transparency hasn't um, mm. along with it. So whereas some sites. Uh, some sellers, let's say, and even marketplaces employ um, third-party tools to, to, to record these reviews mm. so that, that, that the customers are verified that they actually made a purchase and they, they express um, a, a truthful, what, what is mm. hoped to be a truthful opinion. A lot of other sites or, or, or marketplaces essentially feature um, fake reviews whereby... You know, people mm. are paid to post fake reviews yeah. or to give a low rating or a high rating. Mm. So it's very, it's very hard to to to, to completely stomp yeah. out this practice. It's very it's, disappointing. It's I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd I'd always trust in reviews to a point myself. Uh, I mean, you've always got cranks who give out uh, about holidays because it, it rained or the hotel was terrible because it rained, or <laughs> <laughs> and, and you kind of dismiss those and then try to read through the reviews and come to a conclusion based uh, on expecting that there'll be some over-the-top good ones and over-the-top bad ones. Uh, but I wouldn't have thought that there were that many fake ones where uh, the owners of the restaurant or whoever it is are saying it's the best restaurant I've ever been in and you go up uh, then to the restaurant and it's rubbish. But that obviously well, is the case, is it? Is it or it was the case mm. um, anyway, but that's before they, uh, you know, various parties have introduced technology to um, only post and publish uh, verified um, reviews, as I said, mm. only by registered customers that have been recorded in the system as having made uh, a verified purchase or having stayed in that um, particular hotel. And but But then again, you know, you don't know. <laughs> Mm. whether the opinion itself is truthful. Uh, what I do myself is I I, I, I review all the reviews yep. and I just kind of stop in the middle and say, okay, well, these are the good parts, these are the negative parts. And, you know, when it comes to accommodation, for instance, I always go um, on Google Earth to, to see what's, what's there. I go on Street mm. View just to see if, you know, the scenery is exactly as in the photos mm. and, and, and all that. And, uh, you use the reviews as part of your research, I suppose. Yes, yeah, and yeah. I use multiple review sites mm. just to see if they're consistent um, with each other. Okay. So it's, 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 you know, you have to you have to do your own investigation before making any online choice these mm. days. But it's it's one of the um, effects of um, online shopping, and it, you know, it's not a bad thing that consumers are becoming more educated yeah. and mm. more vigilant. Online savvy, Diana. Thank online you. Savvy. Thank you indeed. Uh, much appreciated. Nice to talk to you, Diana Valentine, Press and Communications Manager for the European Consumer Centre of Ireland. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments because we're being flooded with comments uh, today, particularly uh, about the airport and uh, the hotel prices. Just a few words to say about the airport. This is Margaret, who says the DAA is a disgrace. Any authority with any sense would have preempted the amount of people who were going on holidays and more people travelling since travel restrictions lifted. Regards to hotels. Irish people should boycott them. We supported them by staying home when they needed us to survive financially. And this is how they reward us, charging
charging extortionate prices, says uh, Margaret in her message. Thank you indeed for that. Uh, another WhatsApp message uh, from somebody who says absolutely huge amount of blame on the DAA at the airport yesterday. But one thing I continually notice is people getting to the top of the queue and only then starting to get organised and getting their liquids and their bags in order, causing further delay. Thanks uh, for that point. I was travelling through the airport on the 8th of April, says another caller. Five hour queues and in the end we were fast-tracked through security. It's just unbelievable. Five hours waiting to get a a plane. Uh, I remember in the 1970s you used to give out because you had to wait an hour or two to get a a bus. Uh, But in this day and age, having to wait that amount of time on anything, uh, especially in an international airport, one of the busiest airports in Europe, it's beyond belief. It's laughable. It's a joke. It's an embarrassment. It is what it is. Uh, BJ says, Ireland, uh, a land of a thousand welcomes, was the saying. Not so for tourists who come to Ireland. It's a lovely place. Rip-off hotels, restaurants, car hire prices, and then you have to queue at the airport for hours from dawn to dusk to get a flight home. Somebody else says, recently parked at FlyFit Airside Park, €39 Euro for a week, taxi to the airport, €20, Euro, far cheaper than airport car parks. People are saying, what, what did they say? Because uh, they want to write that one down. <laughs> uh, thank you indeed. I'll write it down myself. I mightn't repeat it. I will. Uh, FlyFit Airside Park. Thank you indeed for that tip. Uh, somebody else uh, saying uh, that uh, the bosses in the airport have a, a lot of questions to answer. Disgraceful carry on. That's uh, Claire in Meath. Thank you indeed. Uh, Paddy Duffy says we used to call the farmers the greatest whingers. Uh, they've gone into a per second to the hospitality industry, so-called industry. He says, remember how much money that was spent over the last two years keeping them in business. Our money. And now they have the neck to price gouge us. They deserve no support at all and I'd advise anyone that can afford a holiday abroad to do so although Paddy also says he felt it was a health and safety risk to people at the airport yesterday. Thanks if you have been in touch. There's a lot more and we'll try to come to them before the end of the programme today too. Michael Reed on LMFM Fiona in Dundalk wants to know why the Hotel Federation is not in front of uh, the Public Accounts Committee uh, to justify uh, the charges uh, that uh, they're asking from people and indeed why they get the 9% VAT rate. Rip off Ireland is showing its ugly face once again, says Anne. And uh, somebody else said uh, that uh, there should be help for people who want to go on a staycation. Well, what's wrong with paying four or five hundred euro a night for a hotel? This man will probably tell you what is Dr. Sean Healy, CEO of Social Justice Ireland. Good morning to you, Sean. Good morning, Michael. Don't mind four or five hundred a night in a hotel. One in five of us don't have as much money in a week. Precisely, that's the whole blinking point. Uh, almost one in five living in poverty. Once you include the cost of housing into in the calculation, interestingly enough, um, across all of Europe, when they're calculating the poverty line, they don't include the cost of housing or accommodation generally. Like, mm. So, um, uh, when you look at that way, there's about eleven and a half percent of the population in in poverty. But then, if like we were kind of looking at this and we were saying, okay, we uh, accommodation is essential you, you, you can't survive without accommodation uh, so because you'd be living on the side of the street so mm. the issue then is uh, if you put in the cost of that for people who are um, 
de- de- dealing with the, the, the issue of having to pay for housing, renting it, and so on, and being subsidised. We, then we looked at it like people are actually being subsidised, uh, the HAP payment, RAS, those various payments. And we were saying, OK, let's do a calculation and see how many people are uh, in poverty once you include the cost of the uh, actual accommodation. Yeah. And what we found was dramatic. It, mm. The poverty number went from 11.6% to 19%. It went up at 370,000 additional people in poverty, which brought the number to just under a million, 952,000 people actually living in poverty in Ireland in the, uh, in 2022. All right. And, and poverty is defined by the CSO, isn't it? And it's correct. 60% of the median national income, which that's was right. 25,264 euro a year, or 485.85 a week. Uh, but uh, the 60% is 291.51 a week, so that's a little over 15,000 in a year. So people, uh, uh, one in five, have let a little over 15,000 left after they pay for their accommodation. That's correct. That's correct. And that when you do that, you then begin to see what the shape the country is actually in, because we actually we have a huge problem with housing and with accommodation generally. It doesn't always have to be uh, the actual house. Though social housing is the obvious uh, shortfall in this, because at the end of the day, the government is, has a plan where housing for all, uh, which it published last year, which we discussed on this program at that time. Uh, I was making the point at that time that the numbers being es- es- estimated to be in need of housing um, or social housing uh, that those needs would not be met by that plan even though the government is spending 4 billion a year which is the most that's ever been spent uh, in a year but there's been a huge backup of of the problem if you like because uh, the best part of 20 years ago the government uh, of the day decided with the support of an awful lot of people who were in opposition at the time as well that uh, we should stop as a country really building social housing and that we would basically rent it from the private sector. Yeah. And the result is now in front of us. As we warned at that time and and tried to get people to understand that the dynamics of this would be that over a period of time, uh, the private sector is basically going to realize um, that it can make a lot more money by limiting the supply and uh, the demand will be huge and the cost will be off the wall. And the social housing list will be massaged and that appears to be the case. I'm not sure if you've seen this uh, report from the Parliamentary Budget Office. 60,000 households waiting uh, on social housing uh, and 60,000 on HAP. So the real figure is 122,000 but that's been cut in half uh, because they don't figure in the official statistics. That is absolutely correct and uh, again uh, that's the, the, those are numbers we've been publishing for quite a while so it's terrific to see it out there on the front page of newspapers this morning. It's really, really good. Not only that, just to push it further, it's 120,000 households. It's about 260,000 people. Mm. And to rectify it, and this gives you the scale of what's required, uh, it would, to, to deal with it, we need about 37 billion of an investment in housing. Mm. Okay? Now, the government has come up with uh, 20. Then four billion a year for five years is what they've come up with. Twenty billion. Right. All right. So therefore, you're you're just over half of what we uh, what is required over a five year period, and that is why we have constantly argued that the scale of the response is not what is required to deal with the problem. 
Can I ask you what you think of uh, the suggestion from Oxfam last week, a 1.5% tax on wealth over 4 million, which would result in 4 billion a year? I would have no problem whatsoever with that. Uh, I, I think the idea that in some way or other we need to face up to the fact that we, our, our society is, 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 is splitting further apart. Uh, like at that one level, you have people at the bottom end of it uh, who are further and further away uh, from actually making ends meet. And not alone that, uh, the way they're being dealt with is making that more difficult for them. For example, uh, cost of living has gone up maybe... Uh, 7%, something like that, in this this year. In the previous two years, uh, the government had given absolutely not, not one cent of an increase uh, in the core social welfare rates. In the budget for 2022, they gave €5. Euro. But, of course, if the if this cost of living has gone up uh, by 7% or roughly that, you're talking about 14 or 15 a euro a, w- a week is the reduction in the value of the money that people have. It buys 15 euro less than it used to buy before. They gave us five. So that meant that there's a tenor short in that every week. And then what really annoys me is the government ministers out there saying this is a great situation. And like we are, we've increased, we've done our bit on welfare because we increased it in the budget. You did not. You allowed uh, the welfare people on welfare uh, to actually see their very inadequate um, income, which is below the poverty line the, as, a, as a, at a starting point, you let them, uh, you allow them to fall another 10 euro behind where they were before. And then you're expecting them to be grateful. You're expecting them to be able to make ends meet. This is absolute nonsense. On the other side, mm-hmm. To, to go to, to take up the point you're actually saying, we have an increase in the number of millionaires, an increase in the number of billionaires in the country, and uh, some people who are wealthy um, and some groups did very very well during COVID and so on, and in the last couple of years. So I, I have no problem with whatsoever with the, on that side mm. uh, that that they would pay uh, some kind of a, of a, a sort of a windfall tax or whatever a wealth yeah. tax. But there's another piece in here that we've discussed before, and it's worth copy, uh, mm-hmm. mentioning it here, and that is low-paid workers, because low-paid workers are caught in this middle as well. They're caught, uh, although they have a job, um, there's 100,000 of them actually living in poverty, uh, and that's before you count the cost of the, of the housing. Uh, that will have gone up uh, once the housing cost goes in. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, you have a whole lot of people who are very close to the poverty line, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, even though they're earning money and so on. But the actual, um, like, we're not a high-income economy or a high-income society. We have people with very high incomes. We have sectors like mm-hmm. the, the digital and so on doing uh, and tech the technical stuff doing very, very well and getting very high incomes. Uh, but the problem is there's a huge number of people uh, on relatively low low pay. And they, I mean, while the jobs have gone up to two and a half million, which I think is incredible achievement, but the problem with it is that like we're now in a situation where we're looking for workers, we're looking abroad for workers, we're bringing them in, but we're paying them 
uh, a lot of them, mm. uh, at a level that won't enable them to even afford accommodation. Mm. So, like, there's and something there's, fundamentally there's, wrong yeah, with that. There's certainly uh, an element of greed in that industry as well, and price gouging. Uh, and if our, our listeners think uh, about what you've been telling us today, then that one in five people, after paying for their accommodation, uh, have €15,000 for the year, a little over that. Uh, and then compare that to what somebody has just told us here in a text uh, about a hotel in Limerick. Two and a half thousand for one night in late June. That's without breakfast. Breakfast for one person, 50 euro. But I mean, that shows you the two-tier society we're talking about. That mm-hmm. we've, we've, and this is a very, very dangerous situation because deeply divided two-tier societies are bad for everybody, not just bad for the people who are at the bottom end of it. They're bad for business as well. And I mean, we've been saying this for a while. We've talked about it on this program before. Two-tier societies are bad for business, and that's what you're looking at right now. Can you imagine the reaction of any business person looking at Dublin Airport yesterday? No. Looking or reading about hotels in Dublin or Limerick or Cork no. or whatever? It's a complete embarrassment. Oh, absolutely embarrassment. Yeah. And, like, and not only that, are they going to make a judgment and say, yeah, I'll bring my business to Ireland? They no. will not. No. And, and not only that, but they'll be organized. They're, they're, they're long-range planners. If they see this is the mm. way things are going, there's loads of other places they can go. You, you, I, I, there, there's all sorts of situations where people in other countries have much uh, have less rip-off going on. I mean, the, 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 the item that you were covering earlier about, um, uh, about previously about Bruce Springsteen and the t- cost of tickets mm. is a very good example of that. Where there's, there's, it's quite clear that the cost of the tickets in Ireland are way higher mm. than they are in many other European countries. Almost what what people to, what people's way to travel and, and and go do if they could get through the airport in the first place, which <laughs> is the other side. Of it. If you could get out of the country, exactly. But the bottom line in all of this, being deadly serious about it, is building to rent that the government has and then subsidising the private sector to do it is a nonsensical approach. Of course the private sector has a huge contribution to make, but government needs to do more about affordability. To do that, it has to go and produce and put put the resources in and actually uh, enable local authorities and and, uh, housing associations and so on to build social housing on the scale we require. Otherwise, this is not going away. It's going to get worse rather than get better. All right, Sean, I have to leave there, but thank you indeed for joining us on the programme as always. uh, That's uh, Dr. Sean Healy, the Chief Executive Officer of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly has uh, been recalled. Members of uh, the Assembly will meet in uh, the Chamber at noon. Let's uh, speak uh, to former MLA for the DUP, Jim Wells, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Jim. Thanks uh, for joining us, as always. Uh, The politicians will meet uh, at 12. What time do you think they'll go home? I would say about 10 past 12, um, Michael. I mean, this is doomed to go nowhere. Mm. Um, uh, the DUP made it very clear we will not be cooperating in the election of a speaker or an executive. Um, this is just uh, a bit of shadow boxing on behalf of the nationalists. They're going to put it up to us and we're going to say no. Um, we were no further on than we were the day that the Assembly first met after the election. No, um, but uh, I, I think uh, maybe the British government has uh, been given 
uh, reason to step back from all of this uh, and contemplate uh, the terrible reality of not doing a, a trade deal with uh, the US uh, if something isn't done about the protocol uh, and if something is done about the protocol uh, well then that's going to continue to be the DUP's position Yes, the DUP are absolutely consistent. We cannot go back to stomach and operate business as normal when there's this major threat to our economic and to our constitutional position. It's as simple as that. I mean, the, 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 the protocol is costing us uh, £850 million pounds a year. It endangers our position. The point, the point I've often made to you, Michael, is mm. would the people of Donegal accept a border between Donegal and the rest of the Republic of Ireland? Of course they wouldn't. Mm. And why should we accept a border between ourselves and the rest of the UK. So therefore, it's quite clear the DUP will not be going back into Stormont until this resolution to this dreadful problem. OK, well, it's hard for people in Donegal uh, and Louth and Mead to understand is why people in Uri uh, accept a, a manufactured opposition, as Richard Neil uh, called it, uh, which has left them without a, a government to, to deal with the issues of the day, like the health service and the increase in the cost of living. Well, I think the people in Louth and Neve and Newry and Londonderry will realise that we're going to have to take some pain to resolve this now because if we don't, it's going to have a huge effect on the standard of living of all the people of Northern Ireland and will have a very severe impact upon our constitutional position. It's very clear the DUP have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to deal with this. If we cover four locks and go immediately back into Stormont and accept this perilous situation, then there'll be no way back. And this will trundle along towards inevitability, which is a border referendum and a very serious threat to our position. So, yeah. I, I mean, on this occasion, I have had my differences with the DUP, but unless they're absolutely right. OK, well, there's uh, fellas in Fine Gael who uh, want a, a referendum. Uh, so I suppose you could say that uh, the support uh, for a border poll is increasing. It is, but of course, you, the, 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 the factor that triggers a border poll is if the Secretary of State believes it's going to lead to a constitutional change uh, to Northern Ireland. Mm. And there's no evidence at all. I've said to you many times, 99% of what we call the, the loyalist community will vote to stay in the United Kingdom. Mm. And the polls are showing between 19 and 35% of the nationalist community would not want a United Ireland. So therefore, the reality is, it's not going to happen in your lifetime or my lifetime. People have to accept this is where we are. This is the, the accepted position. Mm. And but we, as unionists, are not going to facilitate anything that progresses the United Ireland. And the protocol certainly does. And we're not just going to accept it. And uh, this could lead to six months of stalemate, and it could lead to another um, assembly election in October. Mm. But if it has to be done, it has to be done. And who will benefit from that? I, I, I mean, uh, you could make the argument uh, that the other side, if you like, and I just don't, I don't mean just mean the nationalist community, but the other side in terms of uh, people who would oppose DUP politics uh, will be the winners uh, when you take into account that support is growing for a, a border poll. Uh, there's to be an Irish Language Act uh, and indeed uh, abortion and same-sex marriage uh, will all uh, become place in no time at all, it seems. Yes, and that's all to the detriment of the people of Northern Ireland. We, we accept that. But with the only card that unionism can play at this stage to get people to seriously look at the protocol mm. is to abstain from government at the moment. And I'm glad to say, when you look at the commentators in GB, 
quite clear, many of them are actually getting at the point. I see Theresa Villiers, a former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, yesterday came out with a very strong statement saying that this has to be dealt with. It is self-evident you cannot have borders in the internal parts of any government or mm. any country. It simply can't happen. Okay. It, 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 and I say, Alex, you have never answered my point, Michael. Mm. Would the people of Donegal accept this? The answer is no, they wouldn't. Mm. Would, would, they, would the SDLP and Sinn Féin have accepted a border uh, around well, the, uh, our border? No. What, what is it, two or three hundred years that they have been accepting it and they want a border pole to reunite the country? Yes, but all countries, <laughs> all boundaries, all political uh, de- demarcations mm, yeah. are are drawn around homo- and a homogeneous group of people who regard themselves as different to their neighbours. In the same sense, you've got Portugal, you've got Norway. Those people don't regard themselves as either Spanish or Swedish. They regard mm. themselves as Portuguese or Norwegians. We are British. We'll be celebrating Her Majesty's uh, platinum jubilee in a few days' time. And still the accepted and settled view is that the majority of people in Northern Ireland do not want mm. to be part of the Irish Republic. They want to stay within the UK. And do you think that the British government will be happy uh, if that supporting that position results in a trade war with Europe and uh, a situation where there's no deal for trading with the United States? Well, uh, remember, this is all about the 6% of goods that come into Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom and then move into the Irish Republic. This is what this is all about, a tiny fraction of the trade. Mm. Now, uh, the, the European Union can opt for a trade war, but they're far more dependent upon the UK market than we are upon theirs. 27 countries. Pardon? 27 yes, countries are more dependent yes. on one country than one country is dependent on 27 countries. Yes, because because the major exporters from Europe are the Germans and their cars and the French and the Spanish. Mm-hmm. They, they export far more to us than we export to them. So therefore, it will endanger the European Union's bank balances rather than our own. So therefore, as far as the, the agreement with the United States is concerned, we do want to do a trade deal with mm-hmm. the United States. But the United States cannot interfere in the internal affairs of Northern Ireland okay. in the same way that we would interfere with our relationship with Alaska. Okay. It's really well, that, that, that we will the result is with. the same regardless of why you're making these decisions or why you expect the British government to make those decisions. The result is the same. It's going to become a very expensive place to live. No, no, because remember, all of this is the overtaking with here six percent of the trade. That trade, by the way, could be diverted by Dunleary. No, that's that, that's if you were to get the, that's if you were to get the solution that you were looking for for the Northern Ireland Protocol. But if you've a trade yeah. war with Europe uh, and um, you're going by WTO uh, regulations uh, for trading with uh, America, you're looking at a very expensive place to live. Well, first of all, Europe can't have it both ways. We signed a binding agreement with Europe for trade, which is operating satisfactorily apart from the uh, protocol. I don't know. So they can't criticise yeah. us for changing the protocol mm. and then tear up their own deal. As far as America's concerned, <laughs> oh, no. as far as America's concerned, mm. the Northern Ireland economy would not be that dependent upon trade with America. Uh, that, that's not a big part of our exports. Mm. No, OK, but tell it to the British government. We'll leave it there for the moment, Jim. Uh, I think we'll be talking about it for some time to come. Uh, As you say, the conversation today in the Assembly will be very short.
very short and utterly pointless, and it's costing a small fortune to bring all 90 MLAs together for absolutely no reason but, but a shadow boxing. Okay, I think people would prefer to see it though than another pyjama day, if you know what I mean. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. That's uh, Jim Wells, political commentator, former MLA for the DUP. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Geraldine in Drogheda on the phone to us uh, saying she likes to go away for a long weekend here and there to hotels in different parts of the country. But the prices this year are just ridiculous. She says she wouldn't encourage anyone to holiday at home. And she agrees with what Imelda Munster said on the programme earlier. It's pure greed. How anyone is able to afford it is beyond me, she says. It is a disgrace. Thanks for your call to the programme, Geraldine. Another call from Bernie who says, between passports and airports it's too stressful to enjoy a holiday I think we should try to holiday in Ireland Uh, I've done midweek breaks for two for 600 euro in Wexford and I don't think it's a rip off maybe the problem is just in Dublin she says Uh, another call uh, from Mark and Trim who says uh, the scenes at the airport yesterday would make you mortified to be Irish. The same with uh, the actions of the greedy hoteliers. Never mind uh, that it is stopping Irish people from holidaying in their own country. The soaring cost of accommodation will also prevent holiday makers from coming here, which is an awful shame. You'd think after COVID we would want to get our tourism industry up and running again. The passport situation is another shambles. If they cannot cope, then employ more people. Also, the cost of car hire has just gone through the roof, which will also put tourists off from spending any time here. Well, thanks uh, for sharing those thoughts with us, Mark. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. A lot of calls to the programme today. Now, if uh, you're working from home or you're tired of uh, the daily commute, you may be interested in our next item. It's uh, the third annual National Remote Working Survey. It's been carried out by researchers from the Whitaker Institute at NUI Galway and the Western Development Commission. We're joined by Deirdre Frost from the Western Development Commission. Good morning to you, Deirdre, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme. This is your third such survey, and there's a lot of enthusiasm, it would seem, from the people that you've been speaking to who are working at home to continue working at home. Absolutely, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, Yes, the the appetite for remote working um, is certainly not waning, certainly from the evidence of the over 8,400 respondents to our, as you say, third national survey. Um, And I suppose what's particularly interesting about the survey this year um, is that it's when the COVID restrictions have lifted. So the first survey we did was immediately after the introduction of the government guidance to work from home. A year later, there were still uh, government restrictions on, on going back to the office. So this year is This survey is the first survey really to identify when people have a choice about what to do, what they want to do. And it's very clear those who can work from home or maybe whose roles would allow them to work from home certainly want to. Um, Not not necessarily 100% of the time, as Mm. the survey data shows, but certainly a degree of of working from home um, a few days a week. Uh, It seems... Odd, uh, but uh, uh, according to the people who responded to you, they're working more. If they are working at home, they do more hours. Absolutely, um, and, and, and that isn't a new finding. Most of the surveys, both that we've done and other surveys, show that 
the, the time people are working actually certainly hasn't shrunk because they're working from home or indeed some of them may be working from a remote working hub as well. Mm. So the time saved from commuting, and again the survey data um, in the full report shows this, the time saved from commuting, some people are using some of that time to actually work. So instead of sitting in their car or on public transport, um, they're working uh, using some of that time to work. Now they're also doing other things, which is which is where the finding about remote working making life easier com- comes comes into it. So mm. they are doing other things with the time saved from commuting, such as exercise, household duties, and and looking after be it, be it kids or elderly relatives. Mm. Um, and that that helps the whole work life balance. And finding time for other things, uh, whether that's cleaning the house or, or DIY, as uh, the case may be. Uh, but uh, this is. A, a relatively new phenomenon, or is it? Uh, I, I take it that uh, most people uh, went to work rather than worked uh, uh, from home before the pandemic. Absolutely. Um, so, so it is. It is a newish phenomenon. Um, remote working, or as it was known before, teleworking or e-working, actually has been a, a notable phenomenon for. for 20, even longer years, but it's been a very niche activity. So we in the Western Development Commission have always had a, a policy of, rem- of remote working, um, not 100% of the time, but some of the time. And indeed, government looked at this 20 years ago um, when, I suppose, technology took off. What's mm. different now is everybody who could physically work from home during the pandemic had to because mm. of the pandemic. And that created a new, both an appetite from employees, but I suppose a recognition from a lot of employers that it can work. It can work in many, many... Well, there instances. was always a, a lot of resistance to it because I think the fear that uh, employers had was uh, that if people weren't supervised, <laughs> they'd go on the dust. They just wouldn't work. Uh, but obviously, uh, your survey contradicts that uh, because people are, are actually working more, it seems. Absolutely. And I suppose in in one sense, you could actually argue that maybe some employees are so keen to demonstrate that it works effectively that they may actually work work harder or mm. or, or to, to demonstrate to their employer that it works. Mm. But I suppose the big change really from the, the pandemic is that many employers, not all, but many employers have now have now th- that trust issue has has dissipated because it's proved to them that it can work effectively and i suppose the technology has moved on too so that you know there's there's online meetings so, so you can be present, um, albeit through a screen, as opposed to acro- across the office at your desk. Okay, uh, it's become commonplace, uh, and as a result, it's opened up the market uh, going both ways. Uh, there's great opportunities for people who work from home if they can do that in their industry uh, from international employers. Absolutely, there is, um, and it's it, it, just as the, as COVID was a global phenomenon. Now the remote working practices is, is a global phenomenon. So yes, the, the practice of remote working for multinational companies is as much as for for local companies, and indeed across across European American mm. different continents. So yeah. it, it's it's as present there as, as as here. I suppose the big the big issue that will be worth watching is the fact that there's very low unemployment at the moment. So mm. Mm. employ employees 
are, are in a good bargaining position to, to, to look for remote working op- opportunities. And to demand it, it would seem, or, or to insist on it uh, if their demands aren't met. And that brings us uh, to the big headline, I suppose, uh, from your survey, which indicates how much people value that work-life balance uh, because they're working from home, they can do these other things, uh, whether it's caring for somebody or or getting the house cleaned or whatever. Uh, And 30% of those who do it say they'd take a pay cut if it was taken away from them. Yeah, I mean, that's hugely um, interesting and insightful that 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 degree of people would consider changing jobs for for a pay cut. Um, And while we've done the same questions in each survey, we've also amended the survey questions to reflect the new new, um, environment. And that was one of the new questions we we introduced this year, and we were really surprised by by the results. I mean, we had some sense that there may be an appetite for it, but the degree um, is really interesting. And I suppose a couple of... Side issues are related. I mean, if people are spending an awful lot of money in terms of putting fuel in their car or transport costs, mm. you know, th- there could be a trade-off. And obviously that's heightened at the moment with, with um, commuting costs. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, there, there, people can be looking at these issues in a kind of swings and roundabouts yeah. issue. They may not be paying the same degree of childcare if they're not all if, if they're not and don't need to earn as much as a, a result it is very interesting Deirdre we have to leave it there though thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today Deirdre Frost of uh, the Western Development Commission that's our programme for today God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.